good morning again. Good, good to be with you. You guys are lively today. If, uh, if you're visiting, really glad that you're here. We are in Exodus. As a church, we just kind of take, take uh, books of the Bible or parts of the Bible, and we just read straight through it. So we're in our Exodus series, coming to the end of it. So we've been here for a while. For the last few weeks, um, the people of Israel, they're in the wilderness, and what Exodus has been showing us, I think over the last four weeks now, every event that we've been seeing is about uh, the relationship between Israel and God. So the people of God and God himself, and represented through Moses, and that relationship still needs some work. Uh, we, what we've been seeing, the people are really prone to um, being impatient and distrustful and complaining, uh, rather than, than having faith, having trust, turning to God in prayer. Uh, they, they have a lot of distrust, and God is patient with them, right? He's very patient with them. He has tons of grace for them. He always shows up how they need him to show up. And that's one of the points we've been hitting on. Like, grace is undeserved favor, right? It's getting better than what you deserve. And that's, that's Israel. They're getting much better than they deserve from God with the way that they've been uh, treating him and acting towards him. That's but that's also us, right? God has tons of grace for us. We always are receiving from him much, much better than we deserve. And what happens now is Exodus starts to take a bit of a shift. We're in Exodus 17, the second half, that's where we're going to be today. And instead of the relationship with God and his people, this is the relationship between the people of God and the world that they're in, and, and the people of the world that they're uh, among. And, um, and so it, just, it turns outward. What happens at the end of Exodus 17 is a battle with the people of Amalek. It's a people that, uh, that reside in the land of Canaan. And it seems like in Exodus 17 they come unprovoked, and fight with Israel. And this is their first battle, right? They didn't have to fight any battles in their, in their departure from Egypt where they were slaves. And it seems like this is sort of prefiguring and pointing to the later uh, conquest of Canaan when Israel would enter into the promised land and have war with the people who are there. And I just want to take a very brief and quick side note and address something that is like a common point of contention with the Bible and with the God of the Bible, where people are critical about uh, Israel's war in Canaan, that they come in and fight with the people who are there and, uh, and just think like, you know, how, how, could God, how could it possibly be a good thing that God is commanding this war and this war just seems so brutal? And so how could God, how could God want this to happen? So just a few things I want to say about that. The, the first thing I'd like to point out, and you know, maybe this is something you struggle with, or maybe this is something that when people bring it up, you, you struggle with, and you're not sure you know, how to think about it or, um, or, or what to think about it. So uh, first of all, war is always brutal, okay? Ancient war, modern war, it doesn't matter. War is always brutal. And so it's, it's, it's misguided and even maybe a little bit dishonest to characterize Israel's war in Canaan as especially brutal. Like, it's not special. It's just the way that wars happen. It's what happens when you're at war. Second, Israel is a nation. Like, at this point in, in the history of the world, in the history of God's people, his people are all gathered together in this nation, and sometimes it is necessary for nations to go to war. 
one of the reasons that we see, and we see it today, is for the sake of protecting your own people against the aggression of the nations around you. Just like, just like we've seen recently with uh, Ukraine and, and Russia invading the Ukraine, and they're fighting to, um, to, to defend themselves against that aggression. Uh, we're seeing it here. We see it more times before they even get to the borders of the land that the people of the land of Canaan unprovoked will come and, and attack them. Uh, a possible reason that we see for, for all these attacks on God's people uh, and one of the reasons that God actually gives us for the conquest of Canaan comes from Genesis 15, that, uh, that this war is actually an act of God's judgment for the sin of the people who are there. So Genesis 15 is God speaking to Abraham about what would happen with his descendants. And God says this, and they, your descendants, shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Right? Your, your people, he says, they're going to go to Egypt and they're going to be enslaved there for 400 years and then I'm going to judge the nation that mistreats them. Uh, but then after this period of time, that's when you'll be able to come back into the land that Abraham is standing on in Canaan. Why is it going to take that long? Because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. They're, they're bad, and we see you know, flashes of that throughout Scripture and, and just the ways that they are bad, things like, things like child sacrifice and injustice and things that are happening in the land. But it's like God is giving them this chance, this period of time, to, to change or to not. And then after this period of time, which is about 400 years, they've proven themselves to be so sinful and so unwilling to change that God is now going to bring judgment on them through his people the people of Israel. I, this could be like a whole sermon, and that's not what this sermon is. So that's all I really have to say about that. It's like Forrest Gump. That's all I have to say about that. And I know that's not going to be a fully satisfying answer for everyone, but that's it. We're moving on. Uh, Exodus 17, Israel in the wilderness. This, this group of former slaves, they're experiencing hostility. This is something the people of God always have and always will experience in the world. People who are uh, hostile to them and hostile to the plan and the work of God. Um, and, and listen, like we're not a Christian nation, which by the way is not a bad thing. Like Christian nations is not God's plan for the world. Um, if that was the plan, Jesus would have said something about it, about setting up Christian nations. Uh, and like before you start filling in the blanks with what you think I mean by that, um, there can't be a Christian nation because the nature of Christian faith, we can't impose or force faith on anyone. It's a personal decision, personal choice. And so, like, I, I get one thing is, like, uh, the, the values that we have because of our faith. I, I understand that, and I understand how Christians can be involved with government and, and work for the state. That's its own thing. But it, in terms of being a Christian nation, like, that's not what the plan is. And God's plan is better. His plan is the kingdom of God covering the whole earth. People who love and trust and follow Jesus all over the world, in every nation, uh, Christians in the United States, Christians in China, Christians in Somalia, just all over the world, uh, being in those places, but having their first allegiance and love and loyalty to Jesus as the king. And, and so following Jesus first and then uh, you know, being, being a good citizen as well, just, just not where it compromises what it means to follow Jesus. 
because that's the plan and that's the way that God is working in the world today, we don't fight wars like Israel fights wars in the Old Testament. Um, we, we don't fight like that. But there is still hostility and there is still a fight. Jesus says this in Matthew 10. He says, and you, my followers, you will be hated by all for my namesake. When you follow Jesus, you're, you're going to be hated. Not like for everything, not for everything that you think and everything that you do, but there's always going to be something. There's going to be something about what you believe and what you value and how you live that other people are going to, they're not going to like it, they're going to feel threatened by it, and, and they may even hate it. Wherever, and, and it's going to be wherever, wherever God's will crosses people, wherever it crosses them in, in the thing that they want or the thing that, that they think is good and right. So whether that is something like, like sexuality or whether that's something like forgiveness and, and generosity, wh- wherever it is that God's will crosses people and says, this is the way that you're supposed to live, and they go, no, I don't want to live that way. And, and they want to live a certain way, and God says, no, you're not supposed to do that. Wherever that cross happens, that's where there's going to be this hostility. And by the way, like, that's not just, like, the people of the world at you. Like, that's in you as well. Do you understand what I mean by that? Like, you're going to find in yourself that same kind of, um, that same kind of hostility and resistance whenever God's will crosses you in something that, that you really want. You're going to notice that. Christians are in this really fun spot. We're on, we're on like the receiving end of hatred for following Jesus. And we're also on the giving end of like where we don't want to follow Jesus. And so like it's, it's all difficult. Um, you know, it's all good, but, but it is difficult. This is not physical warfare. This is spiritual warfare. The Apostle Paul describes spiritual warfare in 2 Corinthians 10. This is maybe one of the best passages to look at the nature of spiritual warfare. And he says this, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete." These are really important verses, and this would be like a great thing to do this week, is just spend some time on these verses, uh, read them, think, meditate on them. You can pray about them. Uh, We're going to spend some time this morning unpacking these and unpacking them in the context of Exodus 17. So just like look at this one more time, read through it again, because I am going to be referring back to it, and in just a moment, we're going to get into Exodus 17. We're going to read through the, the battle in Exodus 17 the, that, that Israel experiences and see what we can learn from it and, and how what Paul writes about uh, spiritual warfare, uh, how, how that intersects with what we see. And so, verse 8, then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. One of the advantages... So now we're starting in Exodus. One of the advantages you have in conventional warfare is it's pretty easy to tell who your enemy is and where they are, right? Like for Israel, they have it so easy. They're, they have their whole big group of people, and there's another big group of people over there, and they want to kill them. And so they can see that's where our enemy is, and that's what they look like, and we can see exactly what they're doing. 
Um, unfortunately, it's not always so simple for us in the context of spiritual war. Um, a lot of spiritual warfare is like guerrilla warfare. So like we know broadly who our enemy is. We, we know that Satan is the enemy. We know that uh, he has work organized under him, and this is like this is the enemy that we're facing in spiritual warfare. But we can't always recognize him and see where he is and, and what exactly he's doing. Uh, not all of spiritual warfare is is that like hidden. Sometimes it's direct. Um, Satan has all kinds of strategies that he uses. You, you think of um, Job, if you know the story of Job, this really righteous guy who just, he loves God and he wants to follow God. And for him, Satan's strategy is, I'm going after this guy's life and maybe I can get him to curse God. And he does. He goes after his, his businesses. He takes all his wealth. He takes his kids. He strikes his body with, with sores and with pain to try and get him to curse God. That's spiritual warfare. He's trying to be faithful, and Satan's like, I'm going to try and get him to curse God. Um, that's not always the strategy he uses. What does Satan do with Eve in the Garden of Eden? He lies to her. He deceives her and tempts her and, and kind of dangles this thing in front of her and says, hey, look at this thing. Isn't this thing much better than what God is giving you? Why don't you, why don't you take hold of this instead? What does Paul say? Spiritual warfare, what does he say? Our enemy is not the flesh. So as a Christian, like your enemy is not China, it's not Russia, it's not Palestine. Like they could become enemies uh, from, from like your perspective as a citizen of the United States, but they're not your enemy as a Christian. Just like Rome is not Paul's enemy. Right? Paul never considers Rome his enemy. Where we find our enemy Paul says it's in these strongholds. What does that mean? He says, we destroy these, these strongholds. And then he goes on, we, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Paul is talking about these, this, um, these arguments and these opinions that become strongholds. They're, they're values and philosophies and ideologies that form a stronghold that gets embedded in human minds and human hearts and in our culture, and it starts to shape the way that we think about ourselves and we think about God and we think about the world. They shape the way that we think about everything. Satan is smart. Peter says this. Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful. You have to be. You have to be sober-minded. You have to be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You have to be able to recognize Satan and the work that he's doing because if you can't, you could end up being swallowed up by it. You might end up listening to him. You might end up allowing him to build up those strongholds in you to, to change the way that you think, that you see yourself and God and the world around you. And that's what Paul says, right? Like, Christians are not immune to this. This is something that we have to recognize in ourselves because we have to take every thought captive. That like you can identify these thoughts existing in you that you, you can't just let go unchecked. You can't just nurture those thoughts. You have to recognize, okay, this actually doesn't belong here. I need to take this thought captive to obey Christ. Like, this, this requires repentance. 
Can you recognize the work that Satan is doing in the world? Do you know what it looks like? The real work that he's doing, I don't mean like Harry Potter. Um, like if you, if you don't like Harry Potter, that's completely fine. You don't have to like Harry Potter. But you, as a Christian, you don't have to hate Harry Potter um, because it's a work of fiction about a magical world. It's not like a manual, like, hey, kids, here's how you do magic. You know, like it's not, like people know this is, this is fiction, it's fantasy. It's like all sorts of storytelling that we see. And there might be elements or themes in stories that are a problem, but uh, so, some people are fighting the war on the wrong fronts. You know what I mean by that? Like some people are fighting on the Harry Potter front, I had a leader in youth group tell me that I was, shouldn't read Harry Potter, but I had a friend who had it worse. He was, he was taught that like, Harry Potter is so evil, you, you can't even go near it, and, uh, and he was young when the church told him that, and he was growing up, and one day he saw uh, one of the Harry Potter books on his mom's nightstand, and he thought she lost her salvation over Harry Potter, and he was distraught over it. That that's not like that's not the way that Satan is working in the world. It's it, it's different than that, and it's much more it's much more insidious. The strongholds that he's forming, um, you can see him everywhere, and we could spend an entire day, we could spend months on this. But I just want to mention three, and maybe you know just be able to recognize the ways that Satan is working in the world to form these strongholds. So so three that are pretty big. Um, one, selfishness is rapidly becoming recognized as a virtue. Do you know what I mean by that? Where it comes from a lot of the, the self-love and self-care stuff, which not all that is bad. You know, there, there's wisdom in like having boundaries and, and certain things, but the world's not shy at all about telling you you need to be selfish. You need to put yourself first. You need to seek your own happiness. Do the things that you want, and anything that gets in your way you should get rid of those. One of the, the great virtues embedded in our culture is selfishness. That is contrary to the knowledge of God where God wants us to, to put ourselves aside for the sake of others and, and seek the happiness of the people around us. And, and that's how we find uh, a, a better fulfillment and meaning and purpose uh, it's contrary to the knowledge of God. It's very present in our world. Another stronghold that he's been developing is in gender ideology. And I'm not going to spend like a super long time on this, and, and I do just want to mention like compassion is always very important, right? But in gender ideology, one of the things that is so contrary to the knowledge of God is um, is we're told, you know, you don't, you don't have to be what you're made to be. You don't have to be what God created you to be. You actually have the ability and the responsibility to make yourself be whatever you want to be. So you're taking the place of God and determining who you are and what you are and what your purpose is, and you don't have to listen to him about any of that. It's contrary to the knowledge of God. And then, and this is an old one, this one has like big staying power, and this is one of the ones we find in the church. Um, this, uh, it's never really like fallen out of fashion, but, but it's self-righteousness. 
self-righteous, I mean, it's big in the world, it's also big in the church, that you do not have to depend entirely on grace. You don't just have to receive the gift. You can actually, by your own efforts and your own achievements and the right things, you can earn your place in salvation. You can earn your place in righteousness, which also means you can look down on people who are not working as hard as you are and have not achieved as much as you have. Big, big one in the church. This, this is where Christians become uh, legalistic or severe, and they lack compassion, they lack patience. Self-righteousness, big one. Satan's ultimate goal for you. So these are examples, and you can see it literally all over the place, these thoughts that are so strongly embedded in the culture and in us. Satan's ultimate goal for you is simply to turn you away from loving and trusting and following Jesus. It's all he wants. And he might use he might use any strategy, any strategy at his disposal to do that. He might do in your life what he done to Job, where you're just trying to be faithful, you're trying to follow Jesus, he hates that, he, he wishes you would stop, and so he goes after you and your life, and, and he brings destruction into your life, and that's his spiritual warfare to try and get you to curse God. He might uh, do in your life what he did with Eve, where he's just dangling temptations in front of you and saying, look at this thing, isn't this better? If you just let go of what God's trying to give you, you can take this instead. He might start building those, those strongholds in you. Um, he might even, another strategy he sometimes uses, he might give you everything that you want. He might try to make your life so comfortable and so easy that you never even think about the fact that you might need God for anything. If you want to look at that, the parable of, of the rich man and Lazarus, he might just give you everything so that you never turn to God. But he's going to do something. He's always doing something. He's, he's active. Can, can you recognize the work that he's doing in the world? Can you recognize any of it in you? Can you look inward into yourself and, and just objectively and with clarity try to see where might I be holding on to a way of thinking about myself or God or the world that is contrary to the knowledge of God? What is it that I need to take captive to Christ? Continuing on in Exodus 17, verse 9 says this. It says, so Moses said to Joshua, first mention that we get of Joshua, it's the one who would eventually lead them into the promised land. Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. What happens after Israel recognizes the enemy and the threat that they represent in the people of Amalek, they make a decision to go and engage with the enemy. And that might seem like the obvious thing to do, but it's not the only choice on the table. They could try to run away. They could try to make peace. Maybe, maybe they know that those are not options on the table and Amalek wouldn't, wouldn't let those things happen. But spiritual warfare is, is a lot like this. Um, you have to understand, in, engaging in the fight, it's a decision that you have to make. It's not a decision that's going to get made for you if you're being passive about it. Do you know what I mean? Uh, 
you remember what Paul wrote. He said, uh, we, we destroy strongholds, we destroy arguments in every lofty opinion. It sounds like the headline to every article that's been written in the last 10 years. Like every article is about like this person destroyed this person or this person demolished this other person. Just like these clickbait articles that get you to see what happened and no one ever actually got destroyed. They're all doing fine. I don't think the press should be allowed to lie like that, but I'm not in charge. So we're going to keep reading those, those headlines. Uh, Paul, Paul uses very, um, very active and very decisive language. Uh, we, we destroy these arguments and these lofty opinions. Even we take every thought captive. Christians are not supposed to be passive in spiritual warfare. It, if you're passive, if you're not doing anything, you're losing. You're being taken over. You're not just sitting neutral. We have to fight. But what does it actually look like to do that? Uh, what, what action does fighting and engaging in spiritual warfare, what action does that actually require? Um, well, when it comes to your own sin, so for just for you yourself personally and what you find in yourself, uh, finding you know, thoughts and desires in yourself that are contrary to the knowledge of God, some of the actions that are required for that are uh, prayer, confession, and repentance. Uh, prayer is just going to God and, and laying your burdens on Him and asking Him for His help and to, to help you fight the sin, to overcome the sin, whatever it is. Confessing is naming your sin, offering no excuses for it. Repentance is turning away from your sin, letting go of it, making real changes in your life so that the, the sin is not sticking to you anymore and turning to God to, to be filled up from him uh, in, instead of, you know, the thing that you were turning to, to your sin for. Those three, uh, prayer and confession and repentance, are, are, you, are you active in fighting the sin in your own life? If you're a Christian, right? Are you active in fighting the sin in your own life? Martin Luther, the reformer from 500 years ago, said all of life is repentance. This is never going to stop. There's always something. And so if you're not doing anything, you're being taken over. This is something that, that for Christians, it's, it's not an option. It's actually something God compels us to do. If, if, he, if God really has a hold of you, he, he compels you to do this. When you become a Christian, like you actually become something new. You, you receive the Holy Spirit, and he, the Holy Spirit convicts you. He gives you this new heart that is filled with love for God, where before you were just in, in your sin, and you had a sin nature. And, uh, and so what happened when you had a sin nature, and you, you, um, whatever your sin was, what could happen is, you know, you might want to hide it so other people don't know, and you want to be protected from the consequences of it, but you don't mind the sin itself. And as long as no one knows, you can keep doing it, and you're fine with that. And so you're going to hide it, or you're going to make excuses and justifications for it. Um, essentially, you're at peace with your own sin. You're fine with it being there. When you become a Christian, you receive the Holy Spirit. He's going to convict you. The new heart that he gives you is going to it's going to revolt against that sin when it recognizes it. And so even though you do still sin as a Christian, there's no more peace. You recognize it and you go, I hate this. I wish this was gone. I need to get rid of it, right? You're not at peace with it anymore. 
That's what spiritual warfare inside of you looks like as a follower of Jesus. I can't let this sin be. I need to pray. I need to confess. I need to repent. What does it look like in, in the world? What does it look like when you, as a Christian, you encounter the, the strongholds or you encounter people who you hate you or hate uh, the, the knowledge of God, the mission that he's on, the purpose that he's given you? That what actions are required of you then? Well, here's how Jesus talks about it. He says, uh, but, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And then Paul in Romans 12 says, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. You notice what Paul and Jesus leave out of their instructions for how to deal with people who are hostile to Jesus. It's, you, you, they don't say, you know, mock these people, fight with them, treat them the same way that they treat you. They don't say any of that. No, you stay firm in the truth. You stay firm in what you recognize and understand as God's truth. Uh, you stay firm in your commitment to following Jesus. You don't compromise there, but as you go into the world with this truth that you're following, you also go with love. You don't leave love behind. You, you treat people with kindness and patience and compassion and generosity. We fight the same way that, that Jesus fought when we were his enemies. And we all were. That's, that's how we all start. We're enemies. We're, we're sinners. We're rebels against the authority of God until Jesus shows us this amazing love that he has for us, that he would go to suffer in our place and pay our debt so we could be forgiven and set free when we don't deserve it. Grace, undeserved favor, the love that we didn't earn, he pours that out on us, and that's how our, our hearts are conquered and won over to Jesus because of his love. When we go into the world, we have to carry the same method that Jesus used with us. We, we tell the truth and we're firm in the truth, but we're uncompromising in, in the love and the grace and treating our, our enemies much better than they would ever treat us. It could be another stronghold. You, you start deciding the, the ends justify the means. I'm going to treat people the, the way that they've treated me, and I'm going to use every method at my disposal to, to get people to believe the truth, but you end up doing things that Jesus commands you not to do. Is there any of that in you? Is there any lack of love, any lack of compassion when, when you encounter hostility to Jesus in the world? Let's keep reading in Exodus. <clears throat> Two more things for us to learn. Verse 11 uh, there's Moses up on the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and one on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Pretty interesting, right? Most wars don't happen this way who can hold their hands up the longest, which is not that easy. Um, I actually feel so bad for Moses because back in the day, I used to be in the army. I know it doesn't seem like it, but I was. 
And, uh, and one thing that you might not know about the Army is they, they use an exercise called the overhead arm clap. If you guys have been in, you know what this is and how horrible it is. And so for, for part of our training, the, our, schedule, our schedule looked like this. You wake up at 4.30 in the morning to go and like run and exercise and get sweaty and everything after you had fire guard duty for an hour at like 2 in the morning. So you barely slept, and then like you go get washed up, and then you eat breakfast, and you only get like three minutes to eat, and so you're starving. And then they sit you in a room that's a little bit too warm and make you watch PowerPoint for six hours. The military loves PowerPoint. I don't know why. But what happens when you have people on that schedule, and then you put them in front of PowerPoint for six hours is people fall asleep. And when people fall asleep when they're not supposed to in the army, you get punished. And so we have to do in that room a lot of overhead arm claps. And so you, you hold your arms out to the side, and then it's four counts, like one, two, three, and that's one iteration. So every iteration is actually two claps. One time, we did 700 claps. Your arms feel like they're going to fall off. It's absolutely brutal. And, you know... Terrible. Don't join the army. Uh, uh, take that, recruiters. Um, the, uh, now, the point in Exodus is not this amazing feat of strength by Moses, where now he's being helped by, by Aaron and her. Um, the, the point of Exodus that we're seeing here is this, this is a visual representation of God's role in the battle. That even though there's, there's a fight happening down there where people are really swinging their swords, the power for that fight, the determining factor in that fight is coming from God. And that's what we see Moses with his arms raised up depending on God's power in this battle. Here's the thing. You, you can be fighting the good fight in spiritual warfare you could be doing all the right things, but you could be doing it with two different mindsets. One, where you are acknowledging your need for God's help and you're relying on him. You're saying, God, I, I need you. Would you give me strength for this? Would you give us victory? Would you give me wisdom? You're depending on him and, and you're asking him for his help in the fight. That's the one that you want. The other is where you are trying to do something for God. And, and it's almost like you're trying to prove yourself to God by what you're able to accomplish for him. And that's really just self-righteousness. The thing is, whenever, whenever Moses' arms go down, Israel starts losing. They can't do anything on their own, in their own strength. Jesus says the same thing to us. In, in John 15, verse 5, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. This is why you can't disregard prayer in spiritual warfare, in fighting against your sin, and even in, in, in standing against the strongholds that Satan's developed and embedded in the world. Because you can't do it on your own. And you're not supposed to. That's the gospel, right? The good news is that you don't have to do it on your own because Jesus has done it for you already. Exodus gives us such a good picture of the gospel here where, where Jesus, when he wins spiritual warfare, when Jesus hands defeat to, to Satan and sin and death, where does he do it? 
on the cross with his arms held out. While Jesus' arms are held out, nailed to the cross, bearing the weight of all our sin and dying our death in our place, that is where the war is won and you are forgiven and your sin is taken away. It's, it's Jesus' victory in the gospel on the cross. That is what gives you strength for every fight that you have to face. It's in the love that he has for you, the grace that he pours out for you. That's what fills you and gives you strength. It's not about you proving yourself to God. It's about relying and depending on him. Final thing we learn about spiritual warfare from Exodus 17. Look at this, verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. God doesn't want a, a partial victory. He's going to achieve a complete victory. The name of the altar here, the name that, that Moses gives the altar, the Lord is my banner, that is so comforting. When you understand what that image really means, in, in ancient warfare, the, the battlefield would get really messy because it's, it's, the lines would mix, and then you're surrounded by people from, from both sides, and you're fighting, you don't really know what's going on, and the, it, it quickly becomes disorganized. And that's why armies would carry banners into the battlefield, because you would be in the middle of that mess, and you'd look over and you'd see your side's banner and you'd know that's where we are and you'd all go towards it and gather under it and it became the safest place on the battlefield and also your best chance for victory because now you'd all be gathered together and be able to fight together so when moses says the lord is my banner he's saying the the lord is is my place of safety he's the place where we're safest he's he's the way for us to achieve victory Again, a complete victory where the enemy is destroyed forever. God says, I'm going to blot out this, this enemy from the face of the earth. This is what Jesus does for us in, in the gospel. And what he's done for us on the cross and in his resurrection, Jesus has won a complete victory, even though it doesn't quite feel like it. Um, because it can feel confusing because you read stuff in the Bible about how like you're forgiven, you can never be separated from God, and, uh, and, and you know, Jesus has defeated Satan, sin, and death, and you read all that, and you go, that's great, and then you go to your daily life, and you're dealing with sin, and you're dealing with hostility to Jesus, and it doesn't feel like, it doesn't feel like the war has been won. And so what's, what's happening is um, salvation can be understood in like three stages, uh, if you're looking at salvation, there is justification, sanctification, and glorification. Justification is what happens where, where uh, the moment that you put your faith in Jesus and you depend on his work for you on the cross, at that moment, you're forgiven. In justification, at the moment of faith, you're forgiven and the penalty of sin is removed from you forever. There's no penalty that remains. The debt is completely paid. You don't owe anything anymore. That's justification. What happens next is you move into sanctification. 
Sanctification is the process by, uh, through which you are being changed from what you were into what Jesus wants you to be. And you start becoming more and more like Jesus. Your life starts to resemble him. Your heart starts to resemble him. In that process, there is a lot of repentance. There's a lot of recognizing sin, taking thoughts captive to Christ, repenting, turning away. There's, there's growth and there's change. What's happening in sanctification is the power of sin is being broken. The power of sin to make you obey it, where, where at one point you were at peace with your sin, now you're at war with it, and, and you're, the power is being broken that you don't have to listen to your sinful impulses and desires every, every time they come up. You're, you're getting victory over that. So the penalty of sin is removed. That's happened. The power of sin is being broken. That's what's happening if you're a follower of Jesus. The final stage of salvation is glorification. This is what happens when either you go to be with Jesus or he comes back to be with us. At glorification, that's when Jesus is going to, uh, when, in, when he returns, he's going to make all things right. He's going to bring final judgment, make all things right, and the presence of sin is going to be removed forever. There's not going to be a struggle or a fight anymore. There's not going to be repentance anymore. Sin is going to be completely removed from your heart. You don't have to struggle against it. That's the thing that we long for. That's the thing that we, we, we want to see. That's why we pray for Jesus to return. But until then, we continue to, to fight the good fight. We have to recognize and see Satan and the work that he's doing in the world and even in ourselves. And, and we have to be active and decisive and, um, and struggling against the work that he's doing so we're not overtaken. And as we engage in that fight in ourselves through prayer and confession and repentance and in the world through, you know, being firm in the truth but also committed to loving people, we depend on him. We depend on what Jesus has done for us. We ask him for help. We ask him for victory. We're not doing it because we're trying to achieve something and prove ourselves. We go in with the right mindset of depending on Jesus. And we look forward to the day of final, complete victory when sin is gone forever. Spiritual warfare. Are, are you aware of it? Are, do, you, do you see this stuff? Do you see how Satan's arranging his strategies against you to keep you from loving Jesus and following Jesus and giving yourself to him? Is he, is he going after you and bringing destruction into your life? Is he, is he putting in uh, temptations and trying to change the way that you think? What is it that he's doing? What is it that you have to recognize and fight against? Have you made a decision to, to trust the victory of Jesus for you? Have you given yourself to him? Have you surrendered to Jesus? in that surrender, in that giving yourself over to Jesus, that what you could never do for yourself is finally done for you. You are forgiven, you are made righteous, and you do receive the hope of eternal life. Let me pray for us.